Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Oh, welcome everybody to episode 16. <laughs> Sweet 16. Just feasting on Thanksgiving leftovers. Oh my gosh, I'm dreaming about it. The more you talk about it, the more I'm like, let's hurry up and do this so I can go have some stuffing. For our, well, I guess for all of our listeners, I was going to say non-American, but it applies to everyone. Uh, It was very recently Thanksgiving in America. Yeah, hey. (laughs) And my fridge is full of leftovers. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I cooked an entire Thanksgiving meal for two people. (laughs) (laughs) Do you find, though, that, like, I never feel like my leftovers are in the right ratio. Like, I always have more of something than other things. And it's always the thing I wish I didn't have more of. I did pretty well this year in that the thing I had the least of was turkey. Because I only did a bone-in turkey breast. I didn't do a whole bird this Mm -hmm. time. Yeah. And I was like, well, I'm not even really all that here for the turkey. Like, I'm really in for the, like, potato casserole. I mean, even my dressing's very good. I did a cornbread dressing, made the cornbread, and then I did, like, this sort of spicy breakfast sausage that I browned and cooked in with it. Damn. You went all out. (laughs) What did your roommate do to help? (laughs) (laughs) he came in clutch for an important five minutes Mm. i was like i had a whole schedule you've seen it Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh schedule with times temperatures cooking locations Mm -hmm. um and so he came out and asked if i needed any help at a moment where i desperately needed help and i was like butter this pan (laughs) (laughs) as i was like mixing the casserole together and then he's like okay that's buttered and i was like butter that pan yeah yeah (laughs) and then he mixed together the uh the corn casserole Mm. which is very simple does he do cleanup or anything like that not really so he washed like the dishes we ate with but i am a little bit of a compulsive maniac in that clean as you go Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, oh, I'm with you, 100%. <laughs> and so, like, I already, I prepped everything that needed to be chopped, I chopped the day before. Mm-hmm. So all of that was already prepped. Um, I'd already made the biscuits the day before, the pie the day before. Mm-hmm. And so, because of how I was doing it, and I mean, sorry to the environment, but I bought a couple single-use aluminum baking trays Mm -hmm. to not have to clean up yeah specifically the after effects of the baking dishes Mm -hmm. but yeah all the other stuff washes you go yeah for sure and i had that in my schedule too i knew i knew you were gonna say washes you go (laughs) it's like as soon as like the turkey went in and then i'd already prepped the stuff for the dressing but i needed to brown the celery and the onions and the yeah. sausage so i mm-hmm. like took the sausage out of the casings did all of that then cuz i'd already crumbled the cornbread so got that all mixed 
hit it hit the temperature and then immediately washed those dishes and then I started with the potatoes once that got all mixed together and went in the oven I immediately washed those dishes yeah oh that's good and then the corn didn't have any dishes because you really just dump everything into the buttered tray Mm -hmm. that he buttered just dumped it in and like stirred it mix it in yeah Mm. sounds good so I was on top of it, and I've got a lot of leftovers. You've got it down. Was I eating a slice of pie at 11.30 p.m., holding it in my bare hands over the sink last night? Yes. Well, that's what it's there for. <laughs> also, no dishes when it's your hands. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. Very good. Well, we did the ultimate this year. So you know this about me and that I'm low-key ashamed of it. But so we we live in what's in New England called a two-family. It's basically just a duplex, um, but it's one on top of the other. And my parents live downstairs. And so we joke that we're like that show, which you probably don't even know about, but go look it up, called Too Close for Comfort. It was around in like the late 70s, early 80s, about adult children who lived in like an apartment in the house it was actually set in san francisco it was a good show anyway so we joke that that's how we live because when we go anywhere we leave the house through my parents house because why not like our life is a sitcom so my mom did all of thanksgiving dinner with minimal help and on top of that we ordered from whole paycheck so like I was two times removed from having to do Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner and it was glorious. <laughs> uh. I bet. I mean, I like to cook and I think the reason I I enjoy all of these leftovers of Thanksgiving is that for the most part, it's foods that I never cook at any other point in the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like for Christmas, I'll do the same side. Well, I won't do the dressing, but I'll do the same sides, like the same potatoes, the same corn. But I'll do a ham and not a turkey. No stuffing at Christmas? No. Hmm. Interesting. I'm not judging. I mean, I'm someone who let my mom buy me Thanksgiving dinner, so, you know. No, Christmas is where it gets much more into the dessert baking. Got it. And so it's just like, yeah, ham, potatoes, corn, maybe some Brussels sprouts. Mm-hmm. And then the desserts or the stars it's so interesting to me how you know just different family traditions and regional things and um i find all that really interesting then you use the ham bone and the leftover ham for your black eyed peas for Mm -hmm. new year's yeah every year i say i'm gonna do that and i haven't done it since like i don't know 2002 i I like that tradition but I bet there is a local butcher. Like, I wish I could just buy the ham bones. Because I make red beans and rice a lot. And it's infinitely better when you cook it with a ham bone. Yeah. But I almost never cook ham. <laughs> yeah. It's like, hey, hey, mister, you got any bones? <laughs> there's little butchers around. Yeah, Where you that's are, what I need. Little artisanal butcheries. Whatever. Like, hey, you gonna throw away some ham bones? I'll. I mean, I would pay for them. Oh, a hipster butcher is gonna make you pay for it. Like, yeah, this will be thirty dollars for this. (laughs) 
a bone that doesn't have any ham on it. But you get a leaflet about the pig that it came from, so. <laughs> yeah, but that's what I need because, I mean, I think my red beans are pretty good without the ham bone, but you can tell. Yeah. You can always tell. Yeah, you can tell. <laughs> yeah, I make, my, my specialty is um, split pea and ham soup. I love. And I just make it with like, you know, ham, store ham that I cut up, not with actually like a ham hock like it's supposed to. And it's good, but it's not the same. <laughs> Every year I've thought about doing this like dry rub roasted ham tenderloin, but I never do. I always just go like a spiral cut. <laughs> mm. Wow. That sounds good. I've never even heard of a ham tenderloin, but I know I would oh, yeah. like it. It looks so good. I have this recipe saved and everything. With this, like a lot of spices, some dry mustard, which I love ham and mustard. Mm -hmm. mm. Mm. Maybe this year's the year. <laughs> uh, I, I know myself. It'll be one of those like spiral cut because I always find like that type of ham just too sweet. I don't want a honey ham. Yeah, I don't like I don't like sweet ham. I, I want it savory, very salty, and I like I like the idea of a mustard crust. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't like fruit and meat, sweet meat. No, 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 no. Meat and sweet do not belong together. I'm trying to think. I've had candied salmon, which was pretty good, but I, I, I feel like salmon's definitely a different flavor profile. Yeah. I've had candied bacon, but... I, it's not for me. Mm -mm. No. Even maple. Nah. Some really good bacon in the fridge. I splurged because I figured like sometime this weekend I would want like not Thanksgiving food, but to also not have to cook a lot. So I was like, mm. oh, I'm going to do bacon, eggs, and grits. Mm -hmm. mm. So I've got that in the fridge. Probably maybe brunch tomorrow. So I need you to move closer to me. <laughs> So that I can benefit from your love of cooking. Well, especially as I cook huge quantities. Yes. <laughs> but I would help clean up and do lots of things. I mean, I Just like cooking. I like cooking. Um, and I like baking. But I, do, I don't actually like cleaning up. And I don't like having to do it like on a certain schedule, you know? Like, everything's got to be hot at the same time. Like, I, I can't deal with that kind of pressure. Well, with so many sides, and like you said, a single oven. Like, yeah. my grandma had a double oven. Yeah. It makes sense as to how things got accomplished. Yeah. But that's where, like, my dressing is slow cooker. Mm -hmm. If I can get away with it, I like to use my air fryer for things. Yeah. To, like, diversify what's in what. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, my and then dream I make kitchen a is by fifteen minute increments. I mean, I think you need to call that like a schematic. That's more than <laughs> that's a schematic that you drew. Did you also have like a a layout of the kitchen? So like you're in A position and your roommate is in C position, and then switch. <laughs> Not that I did know exactly where things because my countertop is like a U shape, mm. so I I knew exactly where the slow cooker was going to be, where the air fryer was going to be, like how to move those things. I'd like prearrange things. And then I bought almost all of the ingredients like three weeks ahead of time. Yeah. And I had a list 
a very detailed shopping list by recipe with check boxes. And <laughs> yeah. I was like, because I messed up last year. I messed up my timing really bad at Thanksgiving and we ended up eating super late. Yeah. And I was like, never again. <laughs> <laughs> so where do you stand on the the Christmas stuff? Like, does it start the day after Thanksgiving or when? Where are you? So I'm a little bit sad in that I don't have any Christmas decorations. Mm -hmm. But I moved, in the span of six years, I moved to six different apartments. And I was like, well, I'm not lugging a tree around. (laughs) So I don't have anything to decorate. Mm -hmm. Um, I, most years, don't really watch holiday movies until after Thanksgiving. But I, I have watched a holiday movie pre-Thanksgiving this year. Mm. I don't know. It just felt like time is meaningless anyway. So (laughs) if I want to watch it, why not? Yeah. 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 (sighs) I like the tradition of, you know, everybody's home Thanksgiving. You like have your whole thing. Normally in our house, we would put up the tree Thanksgiving night. Mm -hmm. And like it really kicked off the Christmas season yeah 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 we usually do the day after and mainly because um it's so much freaking work I want to get the most (laughs) life out of it that I possibly can but this year I was researching podcasts on the day after Thanksgiving so we're doing it next weekend but yeah, I, I mean, it's just, it's so strange as a grown-up and then making this, like, holiday experience for kids and comparing that to, you know, the experience that you have when you are a kid and how it's different or when you're an adult without kids because it's, like, three different, very distinct experiences. And it's a lot of work to have kids and, like, create this whole Christmas magic shit. It's a lot. I can't imagine. Because I mean, for me, the holidays are just like, oh, yeah, I'll listen to a song. I'll watch a movie. <laughs> and that's sort of the extent. <laughs> I need to do some shopping. But honestly, I feel like most of my holiday shopping is going to be gift card based, mm-hmm. which isn't my ideal. But now that my nieces and nephews are all teenagers, it's yeah. like, well, this is a lot harder to buy you something you actually want. <laughs> Right, right. It's creepy to buy them underwear when they're teenagers. (laughs) I buy them a book that I think they'll like and then a gift card. So it's like there's a personal thing and then it's like, yeah, and here's like 25 or 30 bucks. Go buy yourself whatever you actually want. Yeah, yeah, that's smart. That's smart. Yeah, I we've started the shopping because, you know, of course, everybody's panicked about supply chain, but we don't do a lot of gifts. We have like... The kids basically get one from Santa, one from us, and then one from their grandparents. So we we try to keep it simple. We don't do the whole, like, 20. I mean, there are times when we might, like, it'll be like a compound. You know, there are times when we have this ideal of, like, we don't want to be consumers and it's one gift per giver. But then it'll be like, oh, well, you know it's six books or it's a book set and something or or like 
they each get one big gift and then their stockings get like like their stockings are nothing like what I experience as stockings. First of all, they're gigantic compared to the stocking that I had. But I got like nuts and orange and a couple candy canes. Like they get actual gifts, just small ones, physically small ones that are in them. So we sometimes the oranges at Christmas was such a gift. That was our stocking too. Was oranges and uh, like a candy bar or two. Yeah, and the joy of that orange was crazy. <laughs> See, I was big on the nuts because my my grandparents had these big like a whole nut like thing, a bowl with crackers, and then like the little picks you could get the stuff out of the walnuts and the pecans and I love that whole thing. No, we had pecan trees on the farm. Oh. And nuts were a chore. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I love to eat them, but like oh my gosh, you would not want a nutcracker. That was like our, our like child labor assembly line. <laughs> Pecans and walnuts are no joke, too. I've done my share of those, yeah. <laughs> yeah, every year. And then you'd, like, double bag them in freezer bags and uh-huh. freeze them. And <laughs> I mean, it's a great protein. Rain food. I love pecans. I, I think they taste so good. They're so expensive here, though. Yeah. Well, because they're a pain in the ass to shell. But since they were free and we had mountains of them... <laughs> hmm. It, like pecans went in everything like i love a chocolate chip pecan cookie which mm. is something i might make Ooh. i might splurge on pecans to recreate those this holiday season yeah and my mom would do a sugar a sugar cookie with red hots yeah those like little cinnamon candies mm-hmm. but the only thing of red hots i could find online was like a giant bag and i can't find them at the store and i was like well i don't need like a five pound bag of red hots <laughs> so then i was like so maybe funny. i can get some hot tamales but i don't think it'll be the same it won't be the same the consistency's all wrong <laughs> i think maybe subconsciously we're both kind of avoiding the darkness of this episode <laughs> Perhaps. Was it Because I'd like to talk more about not this <laughs> horrible <laughs> crime. This one is bad. And, I mean, we say that every time. There are degrees of horror. This one is really, this is like the eighth circle of hell. And, listener, we're trying something new, which is going to be a two-part episode. Mm-hmm. the crime is so prolific and it just didn't feel like there was any way we could do it in our regular amount of time yeah not and do justice to the topic so i i think we should jump in what do you think yeah let's do it okay so i'm going to start us off this week just a bit of setting the scene mm-hmm. aka seattle and the 80s yeah so Luckily for me, as someone who didn't live in Seattle in the 80s, there is an incredible Seattle Weekly article that gave me a lot of key information, um, a lot of good starting points to look things up. So that's going to be linked in our episode notes if you're interested. But 
like most major cities, this was a time of great change for the Seattle area. Population alone, there's quite substantial growth. The 1980 census showed King County, which is where Seattle's located, and a lot of these crimes occurred, had 1.27 million people. And that number grew to 1.5 million by the 1990 census. And for comparison, the 2020 census had it at 2.27 million. Mm. So... It's currently the most populous county in Washington and the 12th most populous county in the U.S. But the Seattle of the 1980s was very different from the Seattle of today, a city that I love to visit. Bistros and condos were just beginning to displace the Cinderella Liberty peep shows, sailor bars and things along First Avenue. West Seattle and Ballard were like stepping back into the 1950s and they were full of Danish and Swedish restaurants instead of all of the Thai, Vietnamese, Japanese, and Mexican restaurants that are there now. Red Hook brought craft brewing to the city in mid-1982, but it would still be a few years before you could get a pint there. Boeing was, and to most extent still is, the major producer of Seattle. Boeing had a downturn in the late 60s and early 70s, which actually gave rise to its own local depression in Seattle. But it was on the upswing, and it was so big that Seattle Weekly even ran a cover, and the words were, is Seattle a company town? And I looked at that article, and essentially, yes, it was. Like, um, if you didn't work for Boeing, you knew people that did, and odds are it was your family. Mm. Houses were selling for fifty to sixty thousand dollars, and people were outraged that a house had the audacity to cost a hundred thousand. <laughs> Simple time, and this was just the eighties. I think people don't understand how absolutely fucked everything is since Ronald Reagan. Yeah, I mean but that's a good example. It was the eighties where houses were fifty to sixty thousand. We're not talking about the thirties. Yeah. But the police in Seattle were enjoying a very benign reputation uh, and to its own detriment, actually, at the time, like not even talking about police today. But there was so much violence that was driving the headlines in the late 70s. There were the sprees of Ted Bundy, the Hillside Strangler, Kenneth Bianchi, who committed his last murders in Bellingham, Washington. Those were all still fresh and the city's memories. And then there was the then-faceless Green River Killer who was killing and hiding corpses along and across King County. Um, And Kirsten's going to take us through that in just a few minutes, but it's important to set the scene of the area. In Seattle, there were three young robbers that gunned down 14 victims at the Wame Gambling Club in Chinatown, which was Washington's worst mass murder at the time. Everyone from true crime obsessives like us to the New York Times were speculating about the dark, dank climate that supposedly bred the violence and killers across the Pacific Northwest. And this speculation even brought about its own film genre, Northwest Noir, which reached a peak at the end of the decade when David Lynch arrived to film Twin Peaks. So, like the film genre, there was even a Northwest noir music style, aka grunge, 
which grew out of the soil of punk of the late 80s and would make Seattle an American music mecca. So throughout this time, businesses were struggling. Shoppers were choosing malls instead of downtown corridors to avoid sometimes rougher crowds. It was also a time of immigration. So a lot of Vietnamese, Hmong, and Mien folks made their way, but there were also waves of refugees from East Africa, Central America, and the Soviet Union, all enriching the local culture and invigorating otherwise ailing neighborhoods as folks were moving out to the suburbs. There were calls for public spaces like art museums and parks, which really planted the seed for a downtown renaissance that came about in the 90s, led by Nike Town, aka Nike now, (laughs) and a bunch of other national mall brands. And likewise, the city was literally laying the track for the light rail transit systems that would transform Seattle into the city of today. This was also the beginning of the tech boom. In 1979, two college dropouts from Seattle named Bill Gates and Paul Allen moved their company, uh, their software company from Albuquerque to Bellevue. Six years later, Microsoft went public, creating a new class of young stock option millionaires and opening the floodgates for a major tech boom in the city. For better or for worse, this transformed the economy, culture, philanthropy, as all of these people started new businesses and charities or invested in pre-existing ones. In 1994, the pool of programming talent around Microsoft drew Megalon May- <laughs> Sorry, I just read my notes. <laughs> I forgot I wrote this. I'm so sorry. I'm not going to edit this part out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I wrote this a while ago, folks, but... Okay, so... <laughs> So the programming talent around Microsoft drew megalomaniac and penis-shaped spaceship enthusiast Jeff Bezos. (laughs) 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 We gotta have these moments of levity. I forgot it. (laughs) (laughs) So it drew Jeff Bezos and his big ideas, uh, which would turn into Amazon.com. And like many cities living the same tech revolution, every boom brought louder chants complaining about traffic, housing prices, loss of character and quality, inequality and equity between real estate and tech jobs and everyone else, all while screaming nirvana. (laughs) (laughs) So needless to say, a hell of a lot was going on when the Green River Killer arrived on the scene And like most cities, just a few miles away is a world of difference, especially when you travel down the 65-mile-long Green River, which is exactly what the Green River Killer did. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting to note the connections between the time and kind of the vibe of an area and then the criminals that come out of that area. Um. So I'm going to switch on over now to the crime part, as Andrew said. And in in talking about this case, I spent a lot of time thinking about what I would even cover. It's a very well-known case. Um, and so many victims. I mean, I think that is really one of the things, one of the many things that makes this so horrific. And so as I sat down to do the research, I kind of, you know, made a game plan of how I was going to take notes, which I do every time. And 
organize my information differently. And as I sat down to do this, I knew that I wanted to tell it from the perspective of centering the victims, which we try to do usually. Um, but in doing that, how do you organize information about 49 different people? That is how many known identified victims the Green River killer um, raped and murdered. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go through and what I want to do is I want to give each of each of the victims a name and just a little bit of information what I could find and I want to do them one by one. Um, and so I hope this works. It's a new way of doing things, but um, I want to start before I go into all of that, though, to say that I'm going to go through them one at a time, like I said, um, to honor them. And I think it will also illustrate kind of the enormity of the damage that the Green River Killer uh, wrought on this community. But I also want to say, as I'm trying to include little personal details, one thing that I won't be discussing on a case-by-case -case basis is who uh, among this list was engaged in sex work or rumored to have been. Um, that's something that's often spoken about in relation to these crimes. And I want to be clear, I'm not omitting that information because I'm trying to whitewash or I, I feel like it's a shameful line of work um, or something that we can't discuss in, quote, polite company. But I'm omitting it because it's well known that Ridgeway preyed on sex workers and also those with, with active substance addictions and other vulnerable populations. But oftentimes the inclusion of that kind of information, specifically on a case-by-case -case basis, is used even if kind of like unconsciously to shift some of the blame for the crimes onto the victims. Like, you know, well, they shouldn't have been doing that or they shouldn't have been there. And we want to be super clear that Gary Ridgway, who is the Green River Killer, um, is 100% responsible for these monstrous acts. No amount of being vulnerable made him kill. So I'm not going to say, you know, this one was rumored to be a prostitute or this one had been a sex worker or this one had been arrested for this. Like, just know that all of these victims were vulnerable in one way or another. Um, and that information is out there, but for the purpose of the story that we're telling, it's not particularly relevant except to know that these were vulnerable people for various reasons. So I want to start then with the first kind of known identified victim. And I say identified because there are still two sets of remains that have not been identified by name, um, but we'll get to that later. The first victim was was named Wendy Lee Cofield and she was a 16 year old um and this this first happened is is taking us to 1982 so the very beginning of the 80s um she was last seen on July 8th in 1982 and her remains were found just a week later July 15th 1982 and she was found in the Green River um, under a bridge in Kent, Washington, which is just outside of Seattle. And she was, as I said, the first known victim. I read quite a bit about her because, again, she's kind of one of the notable cases because she was the first one. And she had a really difficult, sad life. Um, and again, you can go to the episode notes and find all of the links that we're going to talk about. But, you know, 
one article that it wasn't an article, it was a research paper that I read. It talked about um, the vulnerabilities as forced choice. So essentially, a lot of these people came from unstable homes or difficult situations and were escaping a bad situation. And that act in itself made them vulnerable. And Wendy definitely fell into that category. So at, at that time, you know, her body was found. Like all of the victims, she had been raped and strangled. That was Gary's MO. And he was pretty consistent um, in that. And so it was definitely a heinous crime, but not unlike crimes that happen from time to time throughout history, but certainly in this time when um, serial killers were kind of on the rise and knowledge of awareness of that type of crime was rising. So I don't think that this particular crime really got all that much attention. Uh, views at that time too about sex work um, much worse than they are now. And I think police, not that they didn't care, but I do think there was a lot of victim blaming happening. happening. And so I don't think it was made a priority by police at that time. The next victim, the next identified victim, her name is Giselle Ann Lovern, and she was also very young. She was 17. She had gone missing on July 17th of that same year. She was not found until September, and we'll talk more about the sequencing, but they worked backwards and found her last known sighting and determined that she was, in fact, the second victim. Giselle was an avid reader, and she was said to have, have an IQ of 145, which is genius level, and she was a huge fan of the Grateful Dead. The next victim is Deborah Lynn Bonner, and she was 23 when she was murdered. She went missing in July on July 25th. Um, and was found in August later that same year, very close to where Wendy had been found. Um, she was planning to earn a GED. And this is a theme. Again, a lot of these women had big plans for themselves. And maybe in that moment in time, were not in the best place in their lives. But according to their loved ones, had plans to make a change and start fresh. And Deborah was in that category. Our next victim, her name is Marcia Faye Chapman. She uh, was 31 at the time that she went missing on August 1st, 1982. And she was found on a really important day. Um, it would turn out to be, in this case, August 15th, 1982. On that day, the remains of Marcia Faye Chapman were found, along with two other victims, which I'll mention next, um, also in the Green River uh, not too far from where Wendy's remains had been found. Marcia Faye was the mother of three young children. Our next victim, her name is Cynthia Jean Hines. She was only 17. She went missing on August 11th, and she was one of the three found on August 15th, 1982. She was close friends with Opal Charmaine Mills, who was the sixth victim. She was 16, um, and she went missing either August 11th or August 12th, along with Cynthia. Um, I think authorities feel that they were abducted maybe while hitchhiking, and they were also found in the Green River. 
Opal was said to have loved her dog, Muffy, and she really enjoyed spending time speed walking with her mom. The next victim's name is Terry Renee Milligan. She was 16 when she went missing on August 29th of that year. Terry was a brilliant student. She had dreams of going to Yale and studying computer science. The next victim's name is Mary Bridget Meehan. She was only 18 when she went missing on September 15, 1982. Mary loved animals, and she was a talented artist. Mary was seven months pregnant at the time of her death. The next victim, Deborah Lorraine Estes, was only 15 when she went missing on September 20th. She was not found until six years later, and we'll find that's the case with a lot of these. So when we think about Deborah and her loved ones, you know, that's six years of not knowing. So in mm-hmm. addition to the horror of the crimes, there's that kind of collateral damage of the friends and families for a lot of them not having any idea what happened to them for years and years. Yeah. Deborah was said to love horses. The next victim's name is Linda Jane Rule, and she was 16 when she went missing on September 26, 1982. She was found um, not in one of the kind of group places, and I don't like the phrase dump site because these are people, not not garbage. So I'll just call them areas or some some articles call them gardens, which I, I just don't know that there's a good way to refer to them. But one of the pieces of um, Ridgeway's MO was to cluster, but also then where he deposited the remains, he would do it in groupings. Um, but there were some that didn't didn't fall along those lines, and Linda was one of those. She actually was not linked to the Green River Killer until he confessed. So this is one that authorities did not connect with with the Green River Killer until until the confession came out. Uh, Linda was engaged to be married. The next victim is Denise Darcel Bush, and she was 23. She was actually found in Oregon near another victim, which I'll mention soon. The 12th victim's name is Shonda Lee Summers, and she was 16 when she went missing on October 9th, 1982. Now, again, we're mm, three months since since the first known case, and we're on mm-hmm. victim 12. So just to give a sense of, again, the enormity of this, 12 victims in three months. The 13th victim, her name is Shirley Marie Sherrill, and she was 18. Uh, her last known sighting is not pinpointed, but it was somewhere in the neighborhood of October 20th. And she was also found in Oregon near Denise Bush. The 14th victim, her name is Rebecca Marrero, and she went by Becky. She is unusual in this case because she went missing on December 3rd, 1982. Um, but because of circumstances, she was not found until 2010. So the family just suffering for a very long time. And I, I'll go a little bit more into this later. The 15th victim, her name is Colleen Renee Brockman. 
She was only 15, and she went missing on Christmas Eve of 1982. The 16th victim's name is Sandra Denise Major. She was 20, and she went missing that same day. So this is potentially two victims on, on a single day. The 17th victim, Wendy Stevens, is our youngest known victim. She was only 14. So she went missing in the spring of 1983, and she was from Denver and had a very kind of troubled home life, which she ran away from when she was 14, and she found her way out to Seattle. Um, her family had no idea what had become of her. I don't think they even knew that she had made it out to Washington. Um, a family member from her family, I think, was watching a documentary on the Green River Killer and thought maybe, maybe she could have been a victim of his. And so one of her parents took a consumer DNA test, like we can all take now, 23andMe, or one of those, and paid to upload the results into Family Tree DNA, which gave authorities access to it. They, they took the DNA and compared it to samples from um, a set of unidentified remains that they thought matched Wendy's specifications, and they found that there was a match to remains that had been found in 1984. So Wendy Stevens had been found, um, and, you know, to read interviews with the researchers and the, inv the investigators on this case, they have a real tone of reverence. And the coroner in this case talked about having a special place where she keeps and kept the unidentified remains and protected, protected those remains until a family could come forward. And that was the case um, with Wendy. The next victim, the 18th victim, her name is Alma Ann Smith. She was 18. Uh, she went missing in March, March 3rd of 1983. So we see here that there's been a little bit of a pause. Um, two on December 24th and then nothing until spring. But then they come in quick succession after that. So the 19th victim, Dolores Laverne Williams, a 17-year-old who went missing in early March of 1983, and the 20th victim, Gail Lynn Matthews, who was 23 and went missing April 10th, 1983. The three of them were all found near, in a, in a cluster, um, in, a, in a kind of new area that uh, the killer hadn't used before. The next victim's name is Andrea Marion Childers. She was 19 when she went missing on April 14, 1983, and she wanted to be a professional dancer, and she was actually on her way to making that happen, teaching dancing lessons. The next victim's name is Sandra, G Sandra K. Gabber. She was 17, and she went missing on April 17, 1983. The next victim, her name is Kimmy K. Pitzer, and she went missing that same day. She was 16 when she was last seen on April 17th. The interesting thing here though is they were found in different locations, so potentially or abducted on the same day, but then um, left in, in different locales. 
The 24th victim's name is Mary Jane M. Malver, who went by Marie, and she was 18 um, when she went missing on April 30th of that year. She is one of the handful of victims who were not found until Ridgeway confessed and gave directions, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Mm-hmm. The 25th victim's name is Carol Ann Christensen. She was 21 when she went missing on May 3rd, 1983. She had just gotten a new job and was a mother of a five-year-old daughter. And I just want to make an aside here because we're only just now halfway through the list. And that is part of why I wanted to do this. I knew it would be monotonous, but I think it's important that we say all these names. But also I want to talk a little bit about the kind of bias and misogyny and um, classism and all kinds of things when I read through this. So as I was reading through the list and trying to find these little anecdotes and personal um, stories about each one, I was struck by how many times the judgment was just baked into even the seemingly innocent facts. So every one of these victims who had children, the sources made a point of saying single mother of a five-year-old daughter, like that is somehow relevant you know, that she was single. And so it's just a total and complete aside. I've tried to strip that stuff out because it's just bullshit. The important thing I think here to take away is that she was a mom. She had a five-year-old who, again, if if we're going to think about the context of of sex work um, and vulnerability, a lot of women are forced in one way or another into sex work to provide for children. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't the only mother. There are quite a few mothers on this list. The 26th victim's name is Martina Teresa Authorly, who was 18 when she went missing on May 22nd, 1983. Martina enjoyed roller skating, basketball, baseball, and loved swimming. The next victim's name is Cheryl Lee Wilms. She was 18 when she went missing on May 23rd, 1983. Cheryl was the youngest of four children. She had a sister and two brothers. Um, Just a really sad little note is she was murdered on her 19th birthday. Her older sister, Deborah, uh, disappeared under really similar circumstances in 1990, so seven years later. Deborah is still missing to this day, and Ridgeway has been questioned about her disappearance, but he's denied any involvement. So I'm going to come back to Deborah later, but just remember Cheryl and and this family. The next victim, the 28th, her name is Yvonne Antosh, and she went by the name Shelly, and she was 19 when she went missing on May 31st, 1983. The next victim's name is Carrie Ann Royce, and she was only 15. Her exact date of abduction is unknown, but it was somewhere at the very end of May, early June, again, 1983. Carrie Ann idolized Brooke Shields, who was really popular at that time, and she had dreams of becoming a model herself. She played the flute in her school marching band. The next victim, her name is Constance Elizabeth Nayan, and she was 19 when she went missing on June 8th. And she was said to love driving her Camaro. So that was her pride and joy. 
The next victim's name is Kelly Marie Ware, and she was 22 when she went missing on July 18th, 1983. Her remains were found near Constance, um, and again, the killer had kind of shifted to a new location on the south end of the airport, and I think now it is actually that area has been subsumed by the airport at the time that was still kind of a wooded area south of the airport. Mm-hmm. The next victim, our 32nd victim, her name is Tina Marie Thompson. She was 21 when she was taken on July 25th. And the next victim, our 33rd, her name is April Dawn Buttram. She was 16 on August 18th when she was abducted. She is another, April is another one who was not found until Ridgeway was caught and confessed and as part of a plea deal gave directions so she was not found until 2003. Our 34th victim's name is Debbie May Abernathy. She was 26 when she was abducted on September 5th 1983. The 35th victim's name is Tracy Ann Winston. She was 19 when she was taken in September 12th 1983 and she also um, planned to go back to school and get a GED and kind of change her life. She was found in the Green River near where some previous um, remains had been found, Wendy Cofield and Deborah Bonner, but her skull was not found at, at the time that her remains were found in 1986, um, but her skull was found in 2005 in a completely different location, and police assume that someone carried it to the location. So we'll come back to kind of Ridgeway's MO around the locations where he left the remains, but just kind of interesting to note that the remains were somehow split and police aren't exactly sure how. The next victim, our 36th, is Maureen Sue Feeney. She was 19 when she was abducted on September 28th, 1983. Um, Maureen had worked in a daycare center and was said to really like children. Our next victim, Mary Sue Bello, was 25 when she was taken on October 11th, 1983, and she was known for her wonderful cooking. The next victim's name is Pammy Annette Avent, and she was only 15, one of the younger ones, when she was taken on October 26, 1983. Her remains also were found based on Ridgeway's confession and directions. And just kind of a, a difficult little note here is when her remains were found in 2003, she was laid to rest in Mountain View Cemetery, which is a location where several of the bodies were found. He used that as one of his sites where he left remains. And so it's just kind of a strange irony. Mm-hmm. The next victim, our 39th, her name is Delise Louise Plager. She was 22 on October 30th when she was abducted. And like some of the others, she was a mother of two children. The 40th victim is Kimberly L. Nelson, who was 21 when she was abducted on November 1st, 1983. 41st victim is Lisa Yates, who was 19 on December 23rd, 1983, when she was abducted. So now we're going into the second calendar year, or the third calendar year, sorry, of crimes with our 42nd victim, 
whose name is Mary Exeta West, who was 16 when she went missing on February 6, 1984. So again, a break around the holidays between December, January, February, and then picking up. Um, she was just a month shy of her birthday, and she was also six months pregnant at the time of her death. The next victim is Cindy Ann Smith, who was 17 on March 21, 1984, when she went missing. The 44th victim's name is Patricia Michelle Barzak, who was 19 when she went missing. And this crime actually represents the biggest pause um, that we've seen so far. So the 43rd victim disappeared March 21st, 1984. And now Patricia went missing October 17th, 1986. So a complete year and a half in between known crimes here. Hmm. And Patricia was not linked to the Green River Killer until Ridgeway confessed and mentioned this this crime. Patricia trained to be a chef, and she loved puppies and kittens. The next victim, the 45th, her name is Roberta Joseph Hayes. She was 21 on February 7, 1987, when she went missing. Again, representing a pretty big span here between crimes, and again, taking a break between the end of one year and the beginning of another. She also was not linked to the Green River Killer until Ridgeway confessed. And interestingly, and maybe Andrew will talk about this in the, um, in the culture side, but Roberta was featured in a 1984 documentary about life on the street in Seattle called Streetwise. The 46th victim, her name is Marta Reeves, and she was 36 when she went missing March 5th, 1990. So again, we have a big jump in time, three years, over three years here. And she is another victim who was not linked um, until Ridgeway confessed. The last known and identified victim is the 47th victim, and her name is Patricia Ann Yellowrobe, and she was 38 when she went missing in January 1998. Now, she is the oldest of all of the known victims and the final one that we know of. She also was not linked to the Green River Killer until Ridgeway confessed. Her death had actually been considered an accidental overdose. And I did a little digging and I mean I did a little digging into all of all of these, but I was intrigued by Patricia's last name and I had a hunch that she might be Native American, so I I did a little dip, digging. And she was, she was the oldest of 10 children from the Rocky Boy Indian Reservation, home to a Chippewa Cree tribe. And that is where she's laid to rest now in Montana. So those are the identified 47 victims that he was convicted of. We'll get to all of mm. that. There are two more who are confirmed he confessed and, and was um, sentenced for who are still unidentified. One is called Jane Doe B20. And the estimates put this victim between the age of 13 and 24 and she was found um, in 2003 based on Ridgeway's confession and they put the disappearance or they put the time of death somewhere between 1973 and 1993 but they think it was probably 
the first decade of his mm-hmm. of his criminal behavior, which is like, wow, that's the biggest fucking understatement of all time. The next victim, the second unidentified victim, is called Jane Doe B-17. And the age estimate here is 14 to 18. And the time frame, they believe, is somewhere between December 1980 and January 1984. But I will note that this victim was found in really close proximity to Kimmy Kai Pitzer and Marie Malvar and um, in Mountain View Cemetery, which I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Ridgway, in his confession, talked about abducting and murdering three women on that day or two-day period. And so it's likely that this was in April 1983, around the time um, of Kimmy and Marie. So that's 49 souls taken. Um, I teared up as you were going through it. It's just... Yeah, it's really... It's so hard to wrap your head around it and I don't I couldn't think of any way else to present it I wasn't able to find little details on every single person but behind every you know I had to put this in a table there's so much information behind every single row is a family who loved them you know maybe not perfect maybe you know made mistakes along the way but people who love them friends co-workers everything so when you think of the impact that these crimes had on the community, on all of the people in these women's networks and lives, it's it's really difficult to comprehend. Mm-hmm. But all of this tragedy because of one piece of shit. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that we'll, we'll get into. And for this one, as Andrew mentioned at the beginning, there's just so much to cover that we're doing this in two parts. So we will be back next week with part two of this, where we talk a little bit about the piece of shit and basically how they caught the piece of shit. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to thank you for the extensive research that went into this. I mean... Like I said, I did tear up as you were going through it, but just the humanity of presenting it this way, spending that amount of time to talk about them, the research you had to do into each of their lives to try to find those little tidbits. Um, I don't know. I feel proud to be part of it, even though you did all of that work, that we're sharing this and focusing on them and giving them this moment instead of just the grisly details of the crime yeah yeah so we'll be back next week with a bit more like kirsten said how he got caught and then we'll talk about the cultural reverberations but yeah it's a heavy one but we it comes with the territory and if we can't respect the the victims and give them their due then what's the point so thanks for going on this ride with us and we appreciate the hell out of you Absolutely. Thank you. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 